All right, welcome to the conversation on the Young Turks Network. Uh, joining us now is uh, senior investigative reporter Tiwa Chang. Uh, he is uh, tasked with finding out the money and politics behind climate change uh, stories. He's done a great job of that again. Uh, and this time, Tiwa, you wrote about oil companies trying to get subsidies from America while pushing out workers. So uh, interesting details in there. Uh, first of all, why on God's green earth are oil companies trying to get subsidies in the middle of coronavirus? What, is the, what do they have to do with coronavirus? Well, basically, they're, because of the coronavirus, the pandemic, you know, there's not a lot of use of uh, petroleum products because people aren't driving. It's not as much industry going on. So they, what's happening is that uh, they have, there's a glut because of Russia and Saudi Arabia trying to hurt the American shale oil industry. They increased their production. And so you have, you know, classic oversupply and under demand. I mean, but dramatically under demand because basically, you know, no one's driving, et cetera. So the gasoline and there's so much oil out there that we have Saudi Arabian tankers actually in the ocean with nowhere to dock in the U.S. And then you have the Trump administration offered 30 million barrels in storage space at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve tanks along the Gulf of Mexico mainly uh, near in Louisiana. So you've got all this extra oil. So they're saying, oh, we're, we're losing business. It's going to hurt our workers. We're going to have to lay them off. And while they're saying that, and in particular it was Harold Hamm when he met with the President uh, Trump on April 3rd at the White House with six other oil executives, they're basically, we looked it up and we found that they were, they're looking for automation engineers. And the automation engineers specifically say they want to automate and make it more efficient. And they say it's been a policy in this industry. The shale oil industry actually has a convention every year in September in Houston called automation, where they talk about being more efficient. And in one case, the smog, that, that website, they went to a convention and one of the speakers from a natural gas company actually said someday we're going to have these rigs with nobody on them. We'll have no staff at all. It's strictly going to be computer using computers, software, and operating them without uh, people there at all. And I talked to some business people the other day, and they said, you know, in business, if you can cut costs, you're going to do it. And also, if you can be the first to do that, then you're going to have a head start on everybody else. So the first company that does that is going to be the one that gets ahead of the game in the oil industry. And Continental Resources, Inc., which is the Oklahoma-based company founded by Harold Hamm, they have a reputation of using technology. And they have a couple of people now that are already on staff using the SCADA combination software, hardware, uh, computer system to control uh, the oil rigs. And now they're also looking to hire people. We, I, I actually saved the website in case they try to erase it and stuff where they're trying to hire another engineer. And, you know, listen, if a company is trying to hire engineers for automation and automation is to reduce the number of people, you're trying to get rid of people who are working for you. You're not really concerned about uh, the people who work for you. You're concerned about maximizing profits. So, T.Y., there's, uh, in my opinion, three components to this story. Uh, tr the subsidies, the getting rid of their workers, and then Harold Hamm, who's a giant contributor to the Republicans, and specifically to Donald Trump. I want to give that number in a little bit. But let, let's finish up the subsidies first. Uh, you laid out the whole story so people have the context. 
So now to dive a little bit more deeply into it, normally the, the idea behind subsidies in an emergency like this is, well, Americans need this service. So, so let's say that it's a, something that has to do with our security. They might say, well, look, we need to make tanks in the future, and so you got to protect the tank-making company. Or uh, more realistically, hey, we need airplanes, so we got to protect their airlines, and we got the employees that work there, et cetera. Well, in this case, they've got two problems in making that argument, right? One is, well, you guys made trillions of dollars in profits throughout uh, the history of the oil industry. Isn't this capitalism, baby? And we don't, and the problem here is that we have apparently too much oil. So it's not like when the pandemic's uh, done, well, you know what? We'll never be able to find oil again, (laughs) right? (laughs) So doesn't that kind of defeat any rationale for giving them a dollar in U.S. taxpayer subsidies. Yes, it does. And and beyond that, really, if you're really concerned about the workers, what you should be doing is training these workers to build sustainable energy sources, because the workers who build these or work on these rigs can also uh, build rigs that drill for geothermal uh, energy, which is uh, renewable because of the mag, the magnetic flow for moves the magnet around inside the earth. So some of the same workers who operate forklifts, who who uh, operate the uh, heavy machinery and put together the rigs, they could easily be transferred over to building eco parts that have solar, wind, and geothermal, and then they would actually have good, you know, union jobs, high paying that could last five to 10 years, according to some of the environmentalists we talked to. So if you're really concerned about these workers, you would be making sure that the money would be going to uh, renewable uh, resources. In fact, I just read this today is that out of the half a million workers who work on renewable energy sources like solar and wind, 100,000 of them have already been laid off. And that's more than the oil workers. But nobody's saying anything about helping them. And that's really where the future belongs. I mean, at this point, a good uh, statistic that came out, a hopeful statistic, was that for the first quarter of this year in the United States, for the first time ever in its history, the electricity used in the United States from uh, renewable sources like solar and wind was more than the energy generated by coal. The renewable sources had 17.2%, and the the energy generated by coal was 17.1%. Just 12 years ago, that was 50% coal sourced. The electricity in the country came from 50% was from coal-generated plants. It's now down to 17.1. That should continue. That's clearly the way we need to go. And as one environmentalist said to me, listen, if we get it from the sun and the wind and geothermal, nobody can take that away from us. It's not like Saudi Arabia or Russia can say, we don't want to give it to you anymore. It's there and it's free. So we make a big investment there, a lot less, by the way, than the $2.2 trillion that's going out now. And then we've got that resource on a permanent basis, practically. So, Tiwa, they, they usually put out the fiction that, oh, my God, it's not that we're looking out for coal industry executives or oil industry executives. We're looking out for the jobs. And, and that uh, is put to a lie often because, for example, in coal, They then do mountaintop removal, which actually requires very, very few workers. And yet the legislators still protect that portion of the industry, even though it destroys the landscape and the culture around Appalachia, for example. 
And they do it because they get donations, of course, <laughs> from those uh, executives. And in the oil companies, you just proved in this story, and everybody can check it out at tyt.com slash investigates, that they're looking to automate and get rid of jobs. So it ain't about the jobs. But I, the, the question I wanted to ask you in that regard is, as they're telling folks in the political landscape, oh, I should believe me, all I care about is the jobs. When they go talk to investors, isn't that when they're the most honest and tell them, hey, look at all the money we're going to save by cutting all these jobs? Yes, I, I think that's correct. And with the euphemism that uh, Jonathan Larson found in, in an annual report was that they said technical efficiency, technological efficiency. And that's basically a euphemism for automation. And that you won't see automation in the annual report from Continental Resources for the last three years. There's not one mention of automation, but you find technical technological efficiency all over the place. And then, and then when I looked up and searched for jobs, I found the you know that the company was actually looking for automation engineers. Yeah, so that means uh, kiss the jobs goodbye, and the subsidies never go to the workers. They, of course, they go to the bottom line and the executives. Okay, so speaking of which, let's talk about Harold Ham, who runs this company that uh, that is trying to get the subsidies and has already talked to Donald Trump, as you explained earlier. So, how much money has he given Donald Trump so far? Well, uh, he has contributed to the effort, and uh, it's a legal thing about not him personally, but he's contributed, and through his PACs and everything, about a half a million dollars. Jesus, $500,000. Yeah, and in our system, that's not called a bribe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's not a bribe. $500,000, then I ask for billions in return in subsidies for American taxpayers, but no, no, nothing to see here, not at all a bribe. Uh, but, but see, that's the big problem, isn't it, that you have with Citizens United, that they can put all that money into political action committees. And it's basically, you're a jury, you're going to decide someone's fate, and you only hear one side. Because one side can afford to buy all the advertising, and the other side can't. And that's basically what it's come down to in a lot of races, that if you don't have the money for the TV ads and the campaign and the brochures and the staff, then you can't get your message out there. And it's basically you're going to trial and you're only hearing one side. You're only hearing the defense or you're only hearing the prosecution. And that's just not going to. So money is controlling it. And who has the most money? The Republican Party has the most money. They have the wealthiest people. That's right. And Ham hasn't just given to Donald Trump. He's given millions of dollars to the Republican Party throughout uh, all these different decades. And he's a businessman. He's not giving them uh, millions of dollars for free. He's expecting a return on investment. And he often gets it. And that's why we're tracking this. And that's why T was on the case here. Please go to tyt.com to read more, including this story. And uh, as we wrap up here, Tiwa, obviously Harold Ham tried to get to you. Uh, we see that with the with the thugs that he sent after you. And that's why you <laughs> have the, yeah, was, the black the guy. Right? But you an aluminum, no, it was, the thug was an aluminum pole that I pulled on my kids trampoline when I was trying to fix it. And it hit me here. But you know what's really cool is these these little strips here. I kind of look like Rocky, you know, after the fight when he lost to Apollo Creed. Yeah, so but anyway. this time we're not going to lose. We're going to show the Harold Hams of the world uh, that we do real journalism and expose what they're up to. So watch uh, Chang fighting through all that. Thank you, brother. All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, Eric Olson is joining me now. Eric is one of the folks that I met while uh, running for Congress. 
people with amazing stories uh, that are doing amazing things. So Eric was running for uh, state assembly in the 36th district, uh, and uh, that's in the obviously within the district that I was running in, 25th congressional district. So running for state office. Uh, and on the campaign trail, uh, something really interesting happened to him even before I joined the race. So first of all, welcome, Eric. Good to have hey, you on the answer. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So um, when you first started to run, Eric, uh, you started giving speeches uh, about uh, the effect of perhaps money in politics. What did you say in those speeches, Eric? Well, basically, I was saying that we're, we're constantly being told that we need to learn how to compromise. But in California, we have a supermajority, so we're not compromising with Republicans to pass legislation. So who are we compromising to? And it turns out to donors, campaign contributors. And so my message was, uh, if we're going to change politics in California, we have to change uh, campaign finance law. And uh, a lot of people in the party didn't like that. So uh, I'm going to get to that in a second, but I I'm amazed by both the party reaction and, and the main reason why we're doing this interview, and I think you'll be, the viewers will be amazed by it, but I'm also amazed by the media reaction. So number one, your point, Eric, is, hmm, how should I put this? Indisputable. Uh, when you have a supermajority, there's absolutely no reason to compromise with other parties. In fact, the, the voters made it clear, no, we want you guys in charge completely and right. go do the thing that we voted for you to do and that you promised. And so um, obviously, and so there's no need to for compromise in that sense. I'm not saying that they should go wild and go nuts and go beyond the mandate of the voters, but you should at least do the mandate of the voters. Uh, and yet they are constantly pausing and compromising. And, and obviously that leads to the idea that perhaps it's the donors. So when you gave that speech and you're running for office, what happened next? Well, one of the first things I did when I announced my candidacy was to try to reach out to the other candidates and local leaders and party officials, because I had full intention of just playing nice, that we were going to point out these problems within the party and things were going to be great, right? But that's not how it happened. Um, I told my story uh, before about when I met with Christy Smith she had told me that uh, that message was offensive to her, that you have to be able to take money from industry to go do good things with that money. Um, that message caused uh, the Speaker of the Assembly to double down and max out contributions to my opponent, Jonathan Irvin. Uh, they didn't want that. In fact, I had to go to uh, several lunches with party officials where they would tell me to stop talking about it. Hmm. So I want to talk about that, too. So, look, guys, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Uh, our races are over. My race with Christie's over. Eric's race is over. Uh, uh, and we didn't win. Neither did Jonathan Irvin, by the way. It was somebody with bigger name recognition, uh, former incumbent there that uh, won the primaries now in the general uh, election. So this isn't about any of that. It isn't about a, a particular political agenda in a particular race. It's just an amazing story. So in, in, in Christie... You know, and I said this during the run, too. It's not that she's extraordinary. The problem is that w what she said to you is rather ordinary in de democratic politics. Mm -hmm. Hey, Eric, don't talk about the corruption and how we're compromising with donors, because 
Other Democrats find that personally offensive. Now, Eric, if you had told me that, I wouldn't find it personally offensive at all. I, one, I would right. find it perfectly logical. And second of all, I wouldn't be bothered because I'm not compromising with donors. So in a sense, isn't what she said to you prove your point exactly? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It proved my point. In fact, I was kind of dumbfounded that she even said that to me because that's basically admitting that, yeah, I take corporate money and I do corporate things. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost exactly what she's saying there. So, and again, it's not about just Christie. She's now running as Republican. Republicans do the same thing and worse. So it's 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 not a that's not the issue here. The issue is the underlying problem in the system. So, um, she did she mention uh, the Speaker of the Assembly there as someone who was also concerned about the you saying this out loud. Yeah, I was told specifically that if I don't change my messaging, he'll make sure that I go nowhere. And then at another time, I was told even if I do make it to the assembly, that he'll put me in a corner and I'll get the bad assignments and he'll tell the other members not to work with me. So it was just basically all the same threats that uh, AOC gets. So Eric, that's amazing because... Um as progressives, we've seen this so many times and we might not be as amazed by it, but it, it's like uh, the mainstream media gaslights us in a way that we're like, we have to feel like we have to prove this case overwhelmingly. And in your case, it was so stark. It's so obvious. By the way, the media is still largely not covering this story at all outside of us. Right. Um, so the guy you're referring to is Anthony Rendon. He's one of the most powerful uh, people in all of California. But Eric, did you ever mention Anthony Rendon in any of your speeches? Uh, no. Uh, I think huh. uh, towards the end, uh, when I realized that he had made his preference known to all the unions and that I had wasted all my time and money trying to get endorsements that I was never going to get because they had no intention of ever endorsing anybody without the party's approval anyway, uh, then I kind of got upset. And towards the end, I started mentioning his name. But before all that happened, uh, not once. And I think just pointing out that this is what the party is doing and this is the party's policy, you know, they take that personally. Christie took it personally. Anthony took it personally. Yeah. The one's doing it. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing that when you say, hey, isn't it a problem that uh, folks are compromising with corporations and their donors, that somebody, and you never mentioned the guy's name, and he jumps out and says, that's it. You, you're never I'm not going to I'm going to make sure you don't get elected. It's like if somebody was given a random speech about bank robbers and I was like, that's it. I'm so personally offended that I'm going to make sure that you never get anywhere. Wait, I didn't mention you. You just basically admitted you're a bank robber. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I gave this speech uh, to the Progressive Caucus at uh, the party convention. And then I used that speech as an ad. And the day I put that ad out. Uh, he donated uh, max contributions to my opponent. That I mean, look, I, I don't know anything that's more of a stark admission than that. And so, um, and then at that point, Eric, uh, you got approached one more time, didn't you, with another message of like, hey, you're not getting it. We do corruption in this party. You got to stop talking about it. Yeah, but my message to them was, you know, I do get it. And I'm not going to stop talking about it. They said to me, you know, why can't you focus on a positive message? Because behind the scenes, you made sure that I didn't get any endorsements or any money. I had uh, 
no funds to put out a positive message. The only thing I could do is fight back. And I do understand that I'm upsetting him, but I don't care because it is what it is. And I'll call it out on the floor of the assembly as well. Right. And that's why the second time you got the message, they said, well, even if you do win, we're going to make sure that you have as little power as possible in the assembly. I want to remind people, this is not the opposing party. <laughs> this is the same party, <laughs> the party you're in. Yeah. Um, so, Eric, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing names or not, and I'm not sure that it's important to the story, but uh, who was the second messenger? Like, and where did they, uh, who did they say they were bringing the message from? Well, it was from uh, one of the regional reps, right? So they're in charge of overseeing the uh, election process um, for all the delegates in a specific district. And uh, she travels back and forth between our district and Sacramento, and she has, you know, personal ties with Anthony Rendon. Um, so uh, her name was Diana Love. Okay. So she's just delivering a message there, and the message was the same as the one is, Chrissy, we're, you're, we're all deeply offended, you're, you're going to have no power here, et cetera. Right. And, so, and they both made it clear that, uh, you know, it's also coming down from Rendon. Right. And so now Rendon, given that he's one of the most important political figures in the state of California, which has an economy that's the fifth largest economy in the world if it was a nation, uh, well, I'm sure that the press was beating down your door once you told the story publicly just to expose this, because it's an amazing story. Did that happen? No. No. No, they want continued access to those in the establishment. Uh, they don't care to have access to me. They don't want to rough any feathers, right? Yeah. It's, it's amazing and dispiriting uh, that we don't have a functioning press in this country. And we, uh, on the left wing, want a good press. We want a strong press. We don't think it's the enemy of the people. We think it helps the people to find out more information. But unfortunately, the press we have now cares more about uh, access to power and serving power than actually challenging power and bringing out these amazing stories. So, Eric, you're a progressive. Your uh, website was ericfor36.com. Are you keeping that website, and are you thinking about running again? Yeah, I'm definitely going to run again. Um, you know, they say all politics is local, so right now we're looking at some local elections that are going to happen in November. I think the biggest lesson we learned is that without name recognition, you don't win. And if you don't have name recognition, you need money to buy that. So uh, we're going to keep this progressive message going. Before my campaign in the Antelope Valley, nobody here ever ran as a progressive. Um, and so we're going to take that message and keep rolling with it. Uh, but we we have to find out a way to raise money. Yeah. And especially when they turn the unions against you. Uh, yeah. I'm just talking about in a political context. Uh, then you got no access to money. You got no access to volunteers. And I'm talking about other people, not me, because I'm lucky I had, uh, you know, a, a larger audience to begin with and a, and a, and a base that, that gave me money. But if you don't have name recognition and you don't have that base and they turn the unions and the press against you, good night, Irene. And so that's what local progressives have to deal with all throughout the country. So we've got to find a way to unite and, and, uh, and to work together to make sure that we can actually fix the system. And that's what Eric's trying to do. So we appreciate it. And Eric, we appreciate you uh, sharing this important story with us. Yeah, as well. well, the good news, I think, is we're, we're moving the party left a little, a little bit at a time. And 
look, no progressive should feel defeated right now because the fight has really just begun for us, and we are winning some battles. That's exactly right. And the, and the uh, reason Eric talked about running again is, as we saw with Marie Newman, and I've talked to uh, you guys a lot about this, uh, you build up name recognition, and the second time you run, you have a much better chance of winning. And that's why Marie was so far the the one progressive that's won in these primaries, because it was her second time running against Dan Lipinski in Illinois. Uh, all right. Eric Olson, thank you for joining us, brother. Appreciate okay, it. Thank you very much.